What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I'm stoked to finally have Chris Powerhouse. Who? Chris Powerhouse. Who? Chris Powerhouse. Yeah. He's got your back, and uh, he's coming up in a minute. Uh, please support the podcast by subscribing to it. And uh, it's been a while since I saw a review, so handle business. Review the thing if you got a couple seconds. If you want to go the extra mile, go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and uh, become a monthly Patreon. We are trying to do uh, basically bonus podcasts for every interview pod. So if I interview someone, I'm going to have a couple of buddies on. We talk about the podcast as well as go through a discography of that person. And I think we've done one for every single interview. God, going back 15, 20, and uh, we haven't broken our streak yet. So uh, those are some of the best pods. And uh, check it out. And let's get on with the pod. Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I got the mighty, mighty Chris Powerhouse. What's going on, Chris? How you doing, Zach? Doing great. So glad to have you because uh, you know people know how much uh, I I talk about Powerhouse on the pod. I'm a powerhouse punisher, as you could say. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, Thank you. it's so it's so great to have you on. Uh, just to jump right in, uh, where were you, where were you born? And uh, and to tack yeah. onto that, how did you get into hardcore and when? Okay, so I was born in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, and uh, I lived all around that area. That's that's Essex County area, New Jersey. I grew up in that area, Verona, Belleville, uh, Caldwell. You know, Montclair, all, all, all that area. Um, and, uh, you know, through the course of going to school, you know, at that point, I mean, we're talking, you know, 1984, 83, 84. You know, I started meeting some kids that, that were listening to different stuff. And, you know, yeah, prior to that, you know, it was all, it was all the, the, the usual suspects, ACDC and, you know, Led Zeppelin and, you know, that kind of shit. That's, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you start listening to when you're, you're just kind of discovering, you know, music, particularly I was, I was the oldest. So I was the guy that had to kind of figure it all out. You know, I have a younger brother. And uh, so it wasn't like I had an older brother that could kind of turn me on to shit. And my parents had terrible musical taste. I, it, like the worst ever, like my mother, like, show tunes and like just the worst most punishing shit you could ever deal with like it was it was it was bad bro like it was bad so um so uh you know just being in school you know i, I was a pretty angry kid you know shit wasn't wasn't exactly the greatest life so uh i kind of sought out you know what felt right and uh I just, I met, I met some kids that listened to different stuff, you know, and then, you know, from ACDC and all that, it kind of, it became, I know Roger would hate this because he thinks that kids that start with metal and stuff like that are a bit more suspect, but that's kind of where I started like Metallica and Slayer. And, you know, that, that became corrosion and conformity and DRI and span cryptic slaughter from LA and, you know, they got faster and this and that. And then, you know, shortly thereafter, the progressions are fast when you're young, you know, and uh, sure. then I got my hands on the, uh, 
the Chromax demo. This kid, I was fucking up a lot in school. My mother had sent me to this all boys private Catholic high school that I managed to get myself kicked out of. But um, in that time while I was there, it was a lot of kids. There was a lot of inner city kids. You, you had either like really wealthy, like preppy kids, where you had um, you had like a lot of inner city kids. But nonetheless, like um, it was just this crazy mix of people and you know everybody was kind of like on their own thing and uh i just happened to run across this one kid he was like a skater kid and, and he uh uh he asked what i was listening to him it was a walkman at that point i was listening to a walkman you know cassettes and shit and, and he's like yo what are you listening to and i think i had like uh uh i might have had like a metallica record going or something he's like oh boo that sucks and i was like really I was like well what are you listening to and he said i'm gonna make you something and i was like okay sick and uh, this was uh, this was, I guess, probably 1984. And he gave me, he gave me this tape, and it had it had the, the first suicidal record, it had the Chromax demo, and it had this band called Lethal Aggression from New Jersey, and it like blew my mind. Like I was like, whoa, I've never heard shit like this. Particularly, you know, obviously the Chromax. I mean, it's just like, holy shit, suicidal, crazy, and just. Yeah. The best shit and 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 i fell in love like that I, that was it like i found i found me like well some of my yeah were you able to go to shows like in your that. teens i'm sorry were you able to go to shows in your teens yeah okay. yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah so you know i mean so back then too um you know there was like a handful of us like you know in in my high school at the time you know once i got kicked out of you know the other school i got i was able to go back to the high school where my friends were at least the people that I'd been going to school with. And, uh, I, uh, there, there was a, there was a group, there was a very small group of kids that were more into this. And, uh, my friend Gina, if she listens to this, what's up, Gina? Um, she, uh, <clears throat> she turned me on to like, you know, she was, she was definitely more connected with shows and people and all that. She was a year older than me. And so, uh, you know, we started going to shows. There were things going on in Newark, you know, pipeline had shows. Uh, we took a few drives down to city gardens down in Trenton, but even for us at that point, it, that, that was like far. It's like, yo, why are we going to drive all the way down there? We can just go into, you know, Manhattan was 20 minutes. You know, we could be at CB's in 20 minutes from my house. So it's like, why, why am I going to, why am I going to drive all the way to Trenton? And we did, if it was a good enough show, we would, where there's a place fast lane in uh, Asbury park, you know, we could see shows there. Um, Definitely saw a bunch of good stuff at uh, at CB's, Lemoore's. You know, Lemoore's was a big deal for me back then. You know, they're putting out a lot of stuff that I wanted to see. I got to see, like, the Carnivore Reta Retaliation record release party, which was just, like, insane. And that blew my mind, too, because it was on a fluke. I was supposed to be at that show scene, uh, Celtic Frost. And they got, um, whatever the reason, that didn't happen. And it became this, if you remember Flotsam and Jetsam, that was a band of, like, Jason Newsett, uh uh, Jason Newstep from Metallica had done before Metallica. Right. And uh, his band was playing, but for whatever, you know, he kind of threw this mishmash of, of bands together, but Carnivore was on that and they were doing the record release and that shit. I was like, whoa, like it was some next level shit. Like that, that, that blew my mind at that point. That was, I guess, probably 1987 or something like that. But, you know, those were the, those were the places that we were making the rounds, you know, we saw some stuff, you know, uh, Irving Plaza was still going at that, you know, was going back then. Um, uh, what's Webster Hall now used to be the Ritz. I saw, uh, you know, the Super Bowl hardcore there, the first one. I saw the other one when the Ritz moved. Um, 
up which took over Studio 54 in New York. So, you know, I, I, I got around those areas, you know, but I was still pretty young. You know, I, I left New Jersey when I was, I just turned 21. So, uh, and there was even kind of like a lull when it came to shows uh, late, like late 89 into 90, you know, things, are, well, I guess maybe 90, things that got pretty violent. And so there was less and less shows happening. So um, that was actually one of the reasons why I kind of felt like it was okay to, to, to split the East coast, you know, I was like, well, there's not even a lot of shows going on. I'm unhappy. This place sucks. Uh, I need to get the fuck out of here. And, uh, and, and, and that kind of were, were some of the things that inspired me to leave, you know, one of them being even that there weren't, there weren't a lot of shows going on by that point, you know, but, uh, you know, a lot of places have come and gone since, since, uh, since those times, man, I mean, we're going back a while here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a huge move for a young, like a young adult. Um, yeah. What so other than that prompting it, like why do you choose uh you headed to LA, right? I did, I did. So uh <laughs> so in reflecting back on my life, uh, <laughs> I've come to understand that uh a lot of the, the motivations for me were my mother and me I, you know, three thousand miles was probably about the amount of space that I needed between me and her. And uh and I didn't know it at the time, and it, it probably took uh I don't know, 25 years to figure some of that stuff out probably. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I needed to get away from her. She was a really bad person for me, man. Like she was a, a pretty terrible human being in a lot of different ways. And, uh, at the same time I had a girlfriend that grew up in New Jersey and, uh, she did special effects makeup for, uh, for movies. And she had a job opportunity and she said, uh, you know, she was going to go there. And, you know, we'd been dating for a little while, you know, maybe, maybe seven, eight months at that point. And, uh, there was just one more reason. I was like, well, fuck, you know, I dig you and I, you know, I need to get the fuck out of here. Like I'm unhappy. Like I'm not happy here. I, I got to do something. Right. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it was kind of a, you know, a combination of a, a lot of different things, but ultimately in looking back, it was more about just getting away from my mother. Even when I look at lyrics from the band at this point, so much of it is, uh, I realize uh, my mother, like, it's, it's just like, holy shit, man. Like when I look back, it's like, that was the fuck about her too. And I didn't even know it at the time, you know? Yeah. It's weird looking back on stuff and, and realizing it's like therapeutic. Like what would, I, what yeah. would you have done if you didn't have that outlet? Yeah, for sure. For sure. But yes. Yeah, so, so my ex, this girl, Erica, she, she, it was kind of dope though. I mean, we got to LA and, uh, you know, she got to work on like, um, army of darkness, you know, she oh, didn't work yeah. on the full movie, but she got to work on the scene where the, uh, you know, if you remember when uh, Bruce Campbell falls into the pit and he's got to fight that yeah. fucking ghoul or whatever, she got to work on that scene, you know, and she's, uh, she was getting really psyched about the whole thing. And then it all fell apart. Like, you know, this dude that she worked for thought that, like, uh, you know, he was going to get her away from everyone she knew in New Jersey, like her family and her friends and any any boys that she might have been, you know, seeing and this and that. And she would move out there with him and they would fall in love. And, you know, she, she'd see him for who he is and fall in love with him. And they'd become this, you know, amazing, you know, special effects power couple or whatever. And, and I showed up and fucked that all up. So, you know, it, you know, she had been working for him because she went out a few months before me. And then I showed up and that, that ended that whole thing. So, um, and then, and then she got completely depressed and we needed to bail LA after about a year. 
So after that, you you moved to L or you moved to the Bay together? Yeah, we did. We moved to the Bay. She doesn't live out here anymore, but yeah, we moved to the Bay together, and we were still together for almost uh, three more years, like another two and a half, three years. Did you go to any shows when you lived in LA? Well, yeah, but but it wasn't hardcore shows, man. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, even at that point. So we're talking '91, right? Um, and uh, so I saw. I, I I tell you what, there's a place called the Coconut Teaser that was on Sunset. Mm-hmm. I got to see. I saw a Tool play there. I mean, I was kind of sick. There was maybe maybe I don't know, forty people, fifty people, like way early on in their careers. They they didn't even have a release out yet. You know, they were playing on demo shit and stuff like that. Right. Um, my roommate had played in the band, you know, he'd done, it was like a, um, this guy, Lauren, good dude. I liked him a lot. Um, and he was from LA. And so he, you know, he showed me around and he, you know, it, it was cool. We got to hang out a lot. Um, but he was kind of like in the know, you know, he, he had a band, they were doing like a, um, like an industrial band at that point, everything was really starting to pop with that, you know, ministry was big and, um, uh, nine inch nails was just starting to come around and stuff. And they were on that, they were like on that vibe and he knew a lot of people, you know, cause they, they were kind of like for the local LA scene, they were kind of happening. And uh, so, you know, they were rubbing elbows. A lot of people came through our, our house where we lived in Hollywood. Um, and uh, you know, he, he, uh, he would take me around. So I, I saw a tool. He brought me to that. I saw, uh, we went to, um, there used to be a place called Nana that was in Santa Monica. and my ex's uh, friend that we moved in with at the time used to work there. And she worked there with this dude, Rob, that was from Cryptic Slaughter and Burton, the singer from Fear Factory. They all worked together and they would come through um, where I lived and they, you know, they would grab each other and they would head out. They would all drive down to, to Santa Monica together from Hollywood. And uh, so I'd see those kind of guys around and stuff. And that's, that was kind of com- who was coming through the house and stuff. Um, so I saw a, I saw Fear Factory's very first show. They played this, this bar called the Shamrock that was on Sunset. Um, you know, I saw stuff like that. I didn't really see. There wasn't hardcore at that point going on. I was riding the bus to the to and from work, man. So my day was consumed with going and, and you know, riding the bus from Hollywood to like Bel Air, right. Westwood and Santa Monica. My, my entire life seemed to be on the bus. Like it was <laughs> the worst thing ever, man. Like, you know, so. Um, so. I didn't get out. Of I tell you what, here's, this is a good story. So, uh, one day, uh, our roommate, Sharon, uh, Burton, and it might've been Rob at the time, all came through and they looked at me like, Hey, you know what? We're, we're playing hooky. We're not going to work today. Do you want to, uh, do you want to come with us? We're going to go see this. There, there, there's a, a video shoot. And I was like, nah, you know what? I got to go find a job. And they're like, all right, whatever. And, and, I spent my day, I wasted a day looking for jobs. Nothing came of any of it. Um, but uh, later that evening, they come back and uh, I'm like, yo, how was that? And they're, they're, they they said, they're like, yo, it got so crazy. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, well, they said they kept playing the song over and over and everybody kept getting more hyped up. And then they started breaking shit and then they started lighting shit on fire. And it was like crazy. And I was like, yo, I was like, yo, what the fuck? Like, this was the video. Like, yo, it was nuts. We, we, they said it was getting too crazy. We left. They were like, we, we, we wanted to get out of there. Cause it was going to be too much. And I was like, wow. Well, what, what was the band? Like, what, what was it? And like, I was just some band called Nirvana. Uh, like the song smells like teen spirit. And I'm like, uh, who? And like, I never heard, but it's like, it's like, fuck, I could have went to that video shoot. That would have been kind of dope just to be like, yo, I was there, you know, say that, say some yeah. shit. 
you yeah, know, just gym. get a fuck of it, you know. Yeah, but uh, you know, there, there was like those were the kinds of things that were happening down there. You know, it was like no hardcore, man. There was no hard. I mean, I was there ten months. Sure. Most of it was me trying to get my act together, get some money in my pocket, you know, all of that. So that that was pretty much my life at that point. So you moved to the Bay, and where do you end up? So I moved into SF, and I, I, I've been in SF ever since. I got here in SF in 1992, and uh, I'm kind of pulling a stigma here. I've been living in the apartment I live in now for 27 years. I see. Oh, I got I got rent control, so I'm not going nowhere. Man. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been in I've been in this particular spot. I have one other apartment here in the Bay Area in SF. It was in SF too. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I came here. I, I had friends up here actually. One guy who was out here, he was actually a guy who knew me from back in on the East Coast. We knew three people that came from Jersey that were out here. And this one guy, Scott, is somebody that I knew. And he actually knew me from when I used to be, like, fucked up because we used to do drugs together and stuff. And um, back in, back East, back in, in, in New York, New Jersey. And uh, But he was out here. And I'm already sober at this point. And, uh, and uh I just linked up with him and, and, you know, he, he, he actually ended up being the guy that was playing in powerhouse and, and said, Hey, you know, come try out, you know? So, uh, it was funny. We were working on my car and I'm actually just getting this car back. I, I this was the first car I bought in California. I got a 1974 GTO. It's rare. They won't, they only, they made less than 8,000 of these cars when they made them. There's barely any left. I got one of them. It's getting painted right now, but it's just kind of funny to think the day that Ernie brought Scott the demo for Scott to learn these songs, we were working on that GTO. That was back in 1992. So, uh, you know, and here I am, 2020, finally getting this car like on the road. So, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been a work of progress, but, you know, it's, this, it's just kind of funny how we look. I, I look at you know all the shit that's going on since yeah. since I've been here, man. But Scott is a guy that you know. Powerhouse early on changed hands a bunch of times. You know, I, I wasn't the original singer. Uh, Kevin Reed that played an attitude adjustment was, uh, and he did that for a while. You know, uh, it was you know less than a year. Uh, there was, I mean, we've had a, a ridiculous amount of drummers go through Powerhouse. I mean, I've, I I have to think probably eight or nine drummers. You know, so uh, there was. Uh, a drummer before uh, before I even got in the band, this guy Gene Jones, um, and then uh, Eric Thomas came in, and uh, old school guy's been around you know the Bay Area forever. If, if if you've gone to a show, a hardcore show in the Bay Area, he's probably worked security at it. I mean he's he's just been doing the stuff forever. He played in uh, Public Enema, Special Forces, and a whole bunch of other you know hardcore and punk bands and stuff like that that's been his thing um and he was playing when i tried out for the band and then eric left and then we have big j and uh you know uh after big j we had uh kid and after kid we had walter and after walter we had uh uh ricky and then now uh you know and then walter was back you know it's just like i mean it was like this whole thing i don't even know how many drummers that is but that's, it's a bunch man like it's it's changed hands a bunch um guitar yeah, players sure. early on before we had kind of what became the set lineup there was, I think, two or three other guitar players as well that came through, you know. Can you talk about meeting uh, Ernie and Eddie for the first time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, I mean, the first, the very first time 
we were working on my car and Ernie pulled up in some, who knows who, whose car it was. Cause Ernie never really owned any of his own cars for the longest time. He always managed to kind of borrow them from somebody and then hang on to them for, you know, like a year, two <laughs> years. Like it just seemed to work that way. But, um, when I formally met him, you know, Scott had said to me, uh, Hey, uh, and, and Scott played in a band called suburban chaos back in New Jersey. And they, they had like some demos and stuff. And, um, and they were cool. And he'd actually uh, uh, played in a, another band called Out of Control, which had a really dope demo. That 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 was like six songs of just like, and at the time it was, I, I, I still go back and listen to it. It's you, Most people probably never be able to find it, but those guys, dope, dope live show, just killed it. So, so good. And then he moved out here and that kind of ended all of that. But those were a lot of people that, you know, we'd see like the Social Decay guys, um, the Lethal Aggression guys. Uh, those were a lot of the guys that would kind of like we'd run across on a regular basis back in New Jersey, um, you know, what seeing the shows and stuff, particularly locally, you know, if we, if we weren't going into New York, you know, that's the kind of stuff we saw. But anyway, you know, back to, so Scott introduces me to Ernie and Eddie. Yeah. You know, he basically just says, Hey, you know what, this guy, you know, uh, it didn't work out Well, Kevin, do you want, you want to try out? And I was like, yeah, come try it out. And so uh, Scott takes me over to Ernie's place and, uh, pretty wild spot man i mean like it's just like you know he lived on east 14th street like deep east side he's like i don't know 40 like east 14th street and 48th uh 48th ave and uh it's just like you know there's like a million people come through his house all day man like there's always something going on he had like some hustle going on this like wild shit and uh he gave me the demo and he said hey i don't got the lyrics figure them out you know and you know if you can figure out what it is you know we'll practice in like a week or two and and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. And and that was literally how it started. You know, I, I showed up, they liked it and, and and that was it. Like, you know, and, you know, and, and at that point, that's when I met Eddie uh, and the rest of the band, you know, I, I knew Scott. And at that point I, I'd hung out with Ernie a little bit, but I mean, Ernie was a dude, like there used to be hookers that would hang out in front of his, his, uh, the place he rented there. And he had like a little, his couch, he, he set up the couch. So it, it was like just on the, inside of the wall along the sidewalk like the, the front door is literally like on the sidewalk you know like a little uh they had like these sliding glass windows but um it had like metal bars on it and shit but every so often just for for kicks he'd grab a big fucking handful of fucking fireworks light them slide open the window and them just drop them out because he knew the hookers were standing just on the other side and shit just to like listen to them <laughs> scream and go running and shit and just fucking you know lose yeah. your mind yeah, you shout you shout out to 14th Street on uh yes. on one of the demos. Yeah, it's now called International Boulevard. Okay. East 14th Street was the was the name when when I first got here. Yes, East 14th Street. And that's where, you know, um it, it runs it, it's a long street. It it runs, you know, from downtown all the way to deep, deep, deep east side, down into like the the you know, the the hundreds. So it's a long street and it goes through the hood. I mean Ernie and Eddie lived off of that, you know. Um, we spent a lot of time hanging out that area. Like, if you got into the the 30s and the 40s, that was where like a lot of the the the, the Latin stuff was going on. You know, um, you get further east, uh, further east, like higher up in the numbers. Became it was more black neighborhoods. You went the other way, it was more Asian neighborhoods. But where they were, that was like the Latin neighborhoods. Those you know, 20 streets or so, and that's that's where they'd run when they were kids and stuff doing you know whatever they were doing. 
uh, at that point, you know, just being, being wild. I mean, it were, these guys are animals, man, like in the best way, but animals like out of, out of their minds. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why I'm asking the question of meeting them is because for the people that hadn't known them, like these are their characters, like to know them is to love them. Even the first time you meet them. And it's hard yeah. to describe people like that. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, so Ernie would drop those firecrackers out. You're like, so we're on East 14th street. It's a big street. It's like, at points, I want to say it might be even six lanes wide, like three in each direction. You know, in some places it's five because you got, you know, two lanes and then a turning lane in the middle. And when he was still at that spot, you know, maybe a time or two later when I went to hang out with him, he's like, oh, hey, check this out. Look at this. I got these golf clubs. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird. Like you're a Mexican punk rock, hardcore kind of, I don't know what, but like, okay golf clubs and he's like check this out and he walks down to the middle of east 14th street and just starts smashing golf balls down the middle of the fucking street like with cars coming i think it's the greatest shit ever just like laughing thinking this is like awesome you see cars swerving and honking their horns and just speeding up like you know flying up toward us and shit just you know and he's just sitting there laughing thinking it's the, the, the most hilarious thing waiting for the confrontation like he loved that shit like I, I never, I never knew someone that just like thrived on drama the way that he did. Like he loved it. Like he, 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 like he, he fed off of it. He relished in it. Like, yo, like I want to fucking argue with somebody. I want to punch somebody in the face. Like I want to, you know, just, just for fun. Like for him, that was fun. Like he just, you know, he was, he was out of his mind, dude. He was out of his mind. He never worked. Like he lived on the barter system. Like I, I never knew that dude to have a job ever. Until we until we had a tattoo shop, he never had a job, man. Like, you know, he'd grind a little bit here and there, but he like traded for everything. Like, I don't know how the fuck he survived, but he did. <laughs> so you know, he always had a roof over his head. He always had a car somehow. Like he always had a way to barbecue. We'd barbecue till like four in the morning, like six nights a week, you know, just like he always had money for beer, you know, whatever. But he, you know, he figures shit out, man. But like he never worked. That guy didn't have a job. Like you know, he was crazy. And then Eddie, 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 you know, on his own, I mean, Eddie came from Mexico when he was little, man, like his, his parents stayed behind. And he had brothers and sisters up here. And I think he might've been, you know, eight or nine years old. And, and he came up here and, uh, and his brothers were pretty wild too. So, I mean, he kind of followed suit, you know, no, no parental vision, you know, supervision at all. So, uh, you know, they just, they, they kind of just became who they were and they, you know, together, it was like, it was, it was nuts, man. It was definitely nuts. I mean, and they loved, they just, they, they could drink, drink and drink and drink. We played in Brockton at one point. They put, you know, Warren, uh, Warren Lee, if, if you know him, played, uh, played for 25 to life. And then he just became like, you know, guitar tech, uh, you know, superstar working for uh, Slayer and Hatebreed. And, you know, I, his resume is insane, you know, Clutch. And I can't even remember all the bands that he's worked for, but um, he was with us, uh, at that point. And he figured that big J and Ernie and Eddie and two other guys had drank 180 beers over the course of like four hours, man. And they were all still standing and they were like just being wild. And it was probably like 20 degrees in the venue. Eddie's running around with no shirt on, swinging a beer bottle around, breaking shit. And, you know, just, just nuts, man. Nuts. nuts. It's literally like under the giant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yes. You know, and, and the funny thing is, is that show was the first time that we had met Boston Mike and Boston Mike came through and he pulled up in a car and he says to uh, 
he says to uh, Ernie and Eddie, he's like, yo, I'm going to go get beer. You want to go me get beer? Like, yeah, fuck you. Let's go get beer. And they drove down the street. They parked the car and they get out and they go, they go into the liquor store and they buy a bunch of beer and they come back out and uh, Ernie and Eddie are like, uh, they go to get back in the car and Mike's like, no, 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 we're not taking that. And uh, he, he torched the car. He, he, he just dropped the fucking, you know, dropped the fucking Molotov in the fucking car, just like fucking you know, watched it because the guy, yeah, it's not mine. We're, we're not. And, and they walked back to the venue. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Some fucking, you know, just wild shit, man. Wild shit. It was always, it was never dull with those guys. That's yeah. for sure. Me being the sober guy, sometimes it's okay. You know, I was just a lot of handholding sometimes. <laughs> you know. I, I must have enjoyed it somehow because I kept doing it, you know? Yeah. Is, is there three powerhouse demos? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, there was, there was one that, uh, had Kevin Reed on it for sure. You know, that's the one that I learned a bunch of the songs that they had at the time. Um, and then we had, uh, I mean, we had a few different demos really, you know, we, we did have, we had, the, there was the official one where we had, you know, Carl Fisher did the artwork it has that, that guy on the cover with his arms crossed and the, the flip backwards. You know, right. I think that's the second one. That's the OBHC yeah. demo. Right. Right. And then, and then we had another, you know, we had another one that had just, it had less songs on it, but you know, it was some of the stuff that came later on and that, that wasn't even really like, I mean, it, it's out there. It's just not like anything uh, super formal, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, this is like, this is like what we're putting out right now. It just kind of ended up being out there, you know? Yeah. That one came out in 96 with like, uh, yeah. Yeah. It had like nothing sacred on it. Yeah. I, I want to say we recorded that. Uh, <laughs> we recorded that at shark bite studios. Um, and uh, that's the demo that uh, I was making copies of Bill Wilson from blackout records. Had come, he was hanging out with Lars. Uh, he'd been out here uh, hanging out with Lars uh, Fredrickson. And uh, we were, uh, he came over to watch a movie at my house. I, I don't even remember what the movie was, but they came over and, and I, uh, and there was a guy named John Reed that we knew back then. And he, he lived in the area and he had worked for Rancid for a while. And so all these guys ended up on my house when we decided to watch this movie. And they brought Bill Wilson with him because John had known Bill Wilson from back East. John was from like Rhode Island or something. He spent time in New York and he's moved around a lot. But anyway, um, I was making the recordings of that demo, that particular demo you're talking about the 96 demo. And, uh, and he just happened to be there and he heard it. And, and that's kind of what, you know, uh, spawned the, the, you know, powerhouse and, and, and blackout records working together. And it's just cause he was here watching the movie and he's like, Oh, that sounds cool. I like that. Like, I, I want to put that out. And I was like, Oh shit. Okay. You know, it was, it was, it, it was literally like that. It was super casual. The rules just to circle yeah. back a little bit. What were yeah. like the, what were the powerhouse shows? Once you joined the band, what's it like, uh, in like the pre seven inch era, man, like, where, where are you playing? What's the vibe? So, yeah. So this is where, and this is probably part of why, you know, there was not, there wasn't a huge scene. There wasn't a huge scene going on. There really was very, not much of a scene at all. Like it was, it was thin, man. It was super thin. You know, we're talking 93, uh, you know, 94. Um, we were, we actually we played with machine head a lot. We played a bunch of shows with machine head. We played with DRI, you know, at that point we were, we were playing with anybody that would, somehow we could get a show with, you know, um, we're playing punk shows. We played with that band face to face. Uh, we played with, um, 
you know, and then when, when a hardcore band would come on, we would jump on that in a second, you know, just to get on something. But, you know, we played like a lot of these, we, play, we were playing these punk rock shows. Like, you know, there's a lot of these like squat punk kind of houses that were like all over North Oakland, West Oakland, East, you know, just all over. And we would, we would play some of those too, just to have a show, you know? And uh, I remember, I remember we played one and I don't know, these we're on the driveway and we're playing and there's like, you know, this is this kind of squat punk house and like crusty and fucking dogs have been shitting like all over and these guys start moshing and like whatever. And then they're falling into dog shit and they're getting like way too close. And next thing you know, we're like all backed up against the garage trying to stay the fuck away from all these guys. Cause it's just like, it's like, yo, I don't want to get touched with that shit, yeah. you know? And, uh, but it, it was, it, it was thin, man. We played in weird spots. Like, you know, we played this place called brave new world, man. And it's just like, you know, just like weird shows man like weird you know and it, it really wasn't you know it, in 94 we played the berkeley square a lot that place was great everybody loved the berkeley square the shows there were awesome they brought everybody through there um you know i mean shit we said we corn and sick of it all came through there at one point you know but you know Madball was coming through there earth crisis coming through there crown of thorns was coming through there um murphy's law and uh you know i mean uh sheer terror and obituary i mean they 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 they, they had tons and tons of show like um no doubt had played that spot like you know it, it brought a lot of people and it was only like maybe a 400 cap room but it was great like the shows went off there and uh that it kind of ended up becoming the place for us. Um, and uh, at that point we met um, like Eric Ozine and uh, Redemption 87. And uh, there was another band, uh, my, my good friend, Joey Vela had a band at second coming. And, and we all kind of met up around the same time. Uh, it's, it's just kind of like everybody just kind of uh, manifested in front of each other at the same time. And what didn't seem to exist at all, all of a sudden was there. And, uh, you know, I, cause we, we had played Berkeley square a shit ton of times and like, it was never our crowd, you know, there were people there, but it wasn't our crowd. And then one day all of a sudden there's like all these fucking kids and we're like, yo, what the fuck? Like, this is cool. And, you know, shortly thereafter, all of a sudden we're meeting, you know, Joey and second coming and Eric and, and redemption 87. And we all kind of understood, like, it's just us. We got to do this. Like, and, and, and we really need each other to do this because it's just us. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we were constantly doing stuff. Eric Eric was well-connected. You know, he had done Unit Pride uh, previously and stuff. He'd grown up in the Bay Area. Um, he had good connections. He was a good schmoozer. You know, he definitely, um, you know, he had good bands. Like, so uh, he, he had he had pull. He had sway. And, and so he helped. Uh, with a lot of that, you know, early on, he was putting together a lot of like good, like, you know, 10 band uh, shows, 12 band shows, you know, just uh, all day little mini fest kind of things. And it, it, it was important. You know, we needed that at the time. And uh, yeah, we should say that Joey did breakaway as well. Joey did do breakaway. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Old school. Out of mosh. Just, just like right, right before that time though. Cause that's when you guys are, you're going to like build the hardcore scene and blow it up. But I I just want to hone in on like that little time before, because this could be totally wrong. But I remember like when I started going to the Bay in like the late 90s, there was not like a Nazi problem anymore. In fact, like that's why that the shit that happened, that floor punch show is kind of like an abnormality, it seemed like. Because people people explained to me at the time, they're like, 
we don't have Nazi problems here anymore because Powerhouse beat them all out of the scene in the mid nineties. Well, so those guys, yeah. So, um, I mean, we made it pretty clear like that. We, we, uh, you know, um, just didn't want to partake in what they were partaking in. And so, uh, when they did show up, I was like, Hey guys, like, no, this isn't going to work here. And, you know, it always became a confrontation and it ended up being what it was at the time. But, um, there were, there were, there were, you know, yeah, there were blips. There were things that would happen, you know, we, and it was more so, you know, the Bay is definitely a, a more liberal place. So if you ended up with somebody that showed up at a show, that was kind of a surprise. You went to Sacramento, like we would go out to Sac, which isn't far for us, you know, it's less than a hundred miles. Um, you know, we, we met the hoods out there and pressure point and Mike Erickson and, you know, all of that. And, and, and same kind of thing. We all knew we needed to, to, to stick together, but the, the issues there, or you went further East, you got into Stockton and Modesto places like that. You know, you started running across more of that stuff for sure. And they, and they would show up, they would definitely show up, you know, and, uh, and we weren't going to, um, turn down a good time, you know, it's like, okay, cool. You know, here we are, let's do this. We, we know what we stand for. Let's, let's, let's walk the walk, you know? Right. Right. I want to dig a little bit into the sonic quality of powerhouse. Cause even going back to like that OBHC demo, the 1994 demo, yeah, like listening to a song like hypocrite, like that is some of the most wild, insane music you could possibly listen to. Right. It like, is. yeah. I mean, you're just raging. Like it's yeah. so fast and gnarly and relentless and, you know, hardcore. Like, I think I always say there's like a pre hate breed and a post hate breed world where like right. the songs kind of got built more around the breakdown. Not that there weren't always breakdowns before, but like it became a focal point. But yeah. like, I mean, if you think about a song like hypocrite, it's like, you guys are just raging. Like yeah. it's yeah. wild. Like, and That's really crazy. the whole style is like that. Like it's catchy sing-along music and just music you want to get buck to like, what what did you think when you like heard those songs the first time? Well, so when when I heard all of these songs, you know, because Hypocrite was a song that existed before I was in the band. Um, Something Ain't Right, same kind of vibe. Um, it was a song that existed before I was in the band. Um, Shadow of Lies, same thing. Um, you know, and a lot of those are either Ernie's lyrics or uh, Kevin Reed's lyrics. And uh, but when I heard them, I was psyched. I was like, yo, this band has actually got like a New York sound to them, which to me, I mean, I, I've related. It's like, this is great. You know, if, if they had had something different, I may not have even have been interested in, in trying out. I mean, maybe I would have, maybe I wouldn't have, I don't know. But you know, if they had been more like, you know, and poison idea is a great band, but if they were more poison idea, I don't know if I would have connected so much or if they were like RKL and they loved all those bands. They loved RKL. They loved poison idea. They loved, I mean, they had tons of bands, you know, West coast stuff that I didn't listen to as much, you know, I was one of those jerk walls when I was, when I was young, it's like, Oh, it's not New York hardcore. I don't listen to that. I don't listen to that. You know, when I, I, you know, I had a very small view of music for a long time, you know, and it and expanded as I grew up a bit, you know, but um, even at that age, at, you know, 20, 22, 23 years old, I, I was definitely, you know, not well versed when it came to that stuff. And, and uh, I may not have even tried, but when I heard it, I was like, wow, you know, this has got like a, a New York vibe to it. I like it. Like it's, it's a hardcore band. It's not, it's not a punk rock thing. Cause that's what I kind of understood happened out here more. There always seemed to be, you know, East coast was hardcore. West coast was punk rock. You know, that's, that's kind of, you know, where the tendencies always kind of went, 
you know? And, and so when I heard him, I was like, Oh, this is cool. Like I, I actually want to try out for this band. Yeah. So cool. Let's talk about doing the seven inch. Um, Cause you've come into your own by now you've, you've done a bunch of songs with them and like, yeah. this is so catchy and good, you know, like, I mean, you have your Anthem song, the who powerhouse. Yeah. Like, and that's, you do that a little bit on the demo, but you really, you milk it more on the seven inch version. And uh, it's so ill and better. Don't you think? Yeah. 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 Well, you, you know, so um, Lars helped us produce a bunch of that stuff. You know, he's been a friend. He's been a great friend for the longest time. And uh, uh, he also was a big fan and still is a big fan of powerhouse. Um, believed in what we were doing, uh, you know, liked us as people. Um, I mean, him clicked pretty quickly. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, he was more than happy to work with us and he definitely had, you know, um, uh, he had production skills that, that, you know, we didn't have at the time, you know, he, at that point was already working with, uh, you know, Brett Gerwitz and, and, you know, and, and working on his stuff with Tim and Matt. I mean, you're talking like stellar, stellar musicians, like, you know, so he, he had an experience that, we never had at that point. And, and so he helped us to kind of reshape some of that stuff. And I, I believe make a bunch of it better. Right. And just for the listeners that aren't aware of the timeline we're talking about, like this seven inches, 97. So Rancid has already done with, you know, with Lars, they've already done let's go and outcome the wolves. Outcome the wolves. Yeah. And, and time will, uh, it's life won't time. Yeah. Out. Life won't wait. It's going to come out a year later. Yep. It was, was, yeah, uh, it was, it, they were already working on it though. Yeah. At that point. Yeah, so he helped yeah. out a lot with like shaping the songs. That, that makes sense. Sometimes he you see that outside. It was kind of like, nah, you say that too much, change it, you know. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, I guess you're right, you know. Right. Uh, you know, and it kind of sucks because you're like, ah, like this is uncomfortable. Like, no, this is what we wrote. This is our song. But then it's like, no, actually, you're probably right. And then you go back and you check it out. And you're like, no, that was a good idea, you know. So, so you know, a, a little, a little constructive criticism can go a long way. Yeah, and it's like a you know, you name the record Pandemonium and what a fitting album cover to go with like a, a yeah. battle royal. Totally, totally. Well, you know, and for whatever, I who even fucking knows why, but like at that point, wrestling was like this really like hardcore kids were up on wrestling and none of us really were, but it was just kind of seemed to to fit fit the times. So like, yeah, let's do it. You know, made sense, you know. Yeah, so cool. kind of like a mosh pit. So we're like, all right, do it, you know. Yeah, this the seven inch and the the C D come out the same year. But yes. uh, the seven inch comes first, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. Let's talk about doing no regrets. Or do you go to the East Coast before you do no regrets? Do you go off the seven inch at all? Uh, no, at that point. Uh, wait, so 97. Well, yeah, no, actually we did. So uh, we we had the good fortune of playing with um, Madball the first time they came to California in 1995. Uh I guess uh, Eric Gozin being who he was, you know, I, he, uh, they were, they were offered the shows as Redemption 87 to play with Madball and for whatever reason they couldn't do it. And Hey, cool. Like, you know, we lucked out, you know, and, and he said, Hey, do you guys want to play with these guys? I'm like, fuck yeah, we want to play with Madball. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and we just kind of clicked, we clicked just like, like, you know, just, it was like we had known each other all of our lives. And it was cool. You know, we hung out, they were hanging with us. We barbecued at Ernie's house and, you know, we, we ran all the, you know, did little shows together. You know, we did, it was only for a show run. We played in, uh, we played here in the Bay. We played at uh, the Berkeley square. We played up in Sacramento at a place that I, 
I always say it's the, the colonial people correct me, tell me it's a colony. I, I don't even know. It was some spot, you know, um, some spot in Sacramento. That's where I met Mikey Hood. I met Mike Erickson. Um, actually, I already knew those guys now that I'm thinking about it at that point, but because um, I knew them in 94. Uh, but uh, and then we played the Roxy and we played uh, the Showcase in Corona. Uh, I'm so man, jealous. Man. I didn't get to see him till 98. But uh it was all. cool, man. It was de- it was definitely cool, man. I mean, they were coming out on set it off, and man, like I mean, they just they they fucking blew people away every single night, you know. The 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 and the crazy thing is, is you know, we're talking 25 years later, and the energy level is the same with that band. It hasn't changed. It's 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 kind of crazy, man. Like to think that they've you know they've maintained that and Freddie maintains the stage presence that he does still 25 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause you booked them now. Like, I think I saw you when the last time they played. Diego. Yeah, we did. Yeah. I saw you there. Yep. Yep. For sure. I, yeah. So I, I always do the shows for them in the Bay area. I've been doing them for, I don't know, 12 years, 13 years, something like that. But Freddie will ask me to come on and, and tour manage for them when they come to California. And I'm more than happy to do it. I, I even did like a Midwest run with them on a hate breed uh they did like a 20 year anniversary of oh my record was that i'm gonna say something stupid i want to say it was maybe perseverance or something like that it might have been 20 years like a year or so ago um Mm -hmm. and uh someone can fact check me on that because i probably don't have that right but yeah whatever uh, yeah yeah but anyway so you know i run out with them as much as i can you know i love those guys I've, I've 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 known them forever now but uh anyway uh to answer man i take a long time to get to an answer but uh that's good you make it easier for me chris i appreciate it oh well, cool well I, I, I'm, I'm trying man <laughs> <laughs> so so after we played these shows uh with Mambo in california and, you know and we actually had some we had some issues even on those shows uh I, I, you know we ended up playing with a band called uh power assault in LA. And as much as they swore that they had nothing to do with white power stuff, their following sure did. They, they had um, chartered a bus and rolled like 40 people deep. Oh, geez. For this show, you know? And, uh, you know, at that point we were doing ignorant one and, and, and a bunch of songs and we made it pretty clear, like, yo, we don't fuck with that shit. That's not us. And, and we ain't down with you. If that's your shit. We're not down with you. We're just not. And, uh, we can either agree to disagree or we can really agree to disagree. And, and, uh, that, that became one of those times. And, you know, we were asked politely to, you know, stand down because things were getting, um, kind of rude during our set. You know, there was guys definitely popping some sig house and this and that. And we, uh, we wrapped it up a little early and, and then Mad Boy got on and they played a couple of songs and some guy jumped up at the edge of the stage and, and sig howled right in front of Freddie. And that was it. It was on. I, I'd never seen, I'd never seen Big J's drum set get broken down so fucking fast. But everybody had pieces of his kit, man, and you know it. It became a thing. A couple of our friends were already, you know, getting into it with them uh, in, in the crowd. Uh, you know, Big J jumped off the stage. He still had a symbol on the end of the fucking the 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 uh, you know the stand. And I just hear king pang ding, and he's like going through. And I'm like, you know a fucking bull in a China shop, man. And, you know, I just, I, I kind of caught him out the corner of my eye, just going off the stage, man, you know, 340 pounds of the guy going fucking flying through the air. It's like, Oh shit. And he just kind of plowed through there. And, you know, next thing you know, you know, security's breaking the whole thing up and this and that. And that was Ezai and Ezai was always dope. And, 
and he looked at those guys and said to Freddie and those guys, do you guys still want to play and shit? And, and they're like, yeah, you know what? I mean, this is pretty fucked up. What do you want to do? And, and those guys were, you know, still being problematic at that point. You know, they were kind of getting pushed out, but they're fighting the security and stuff. And the show just ended up being a, a rap, you know, and, and that's kind of how the tour ended. You know, it was kind of a short one that night, but, uh, Good memories, you know. That's the kind of shit bond over sometimes, you know. Yeah, and just to describe Jay, your drummer for the for the people that don't know, he's probably like what six four. Yeah, six three, three forty. When he was playing drums in Powerhouse, that's wild. Big guy. Yeah, he was actually, you know, he was down at Jack London Square in Oakland at one point, and uh, you know the Raiders were back here, and they were having some Raider thing, and uh, you know Jay was a cranky dude, man. Like he was always just kind of you know just like ornery and shit, and and. uh these guys come up to him like, hey, you should be fucking playing football for us. And he's just like, fuck you. I'm a Cowboys fan. And they were just kind of like, oh, okay. You know, and fucking la- like laughed him off or whatever. But he was just like, like, just like that, you know, just fucking. Yeah. Didn't he used to use a, a, a bucket as a drum stool? Well, yeah, because he broke the drum. St- he, he would break any kind of drum seat. Like if he had a drum thrown, he would break it. So he used a five gallon like paint bucket, you know, because it, for whatever reason, so held up. Yeah. So that's, that's what he used. He definitely did. You know, that's so rad. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about you going out to the East coast. Cause you make the connection with Madball, and right. then you go out on the seven inch. Yes, correct. So, uh, so, and this was actually pre seven inch because it, we went out there, we played with Madball in 95 and early 96, we went out and we played a bunch of shows. Uh, 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 Freddie got us out there. You know, we got on a show with them at the Wetlands. That was actually the first time that Roger and Kabula and Stigma were all back on the same stage. And I, I don't even remember what how many years it had been, but that was the first time they got back together. And that that was what you know, that was the beginning of them doing uh, something. Got to give. Um, but uh, we played with Indecision, and Indecision killed it that night. And we played with uh, Mabel, who obviously killed it that night. And uh, 25 to life at that point had played and 25 to life was, you know, making a lot of moves at that point as well. Um, I mean, it was a sick show. It was a sick, sick show. And, you know, we did a bunch of other shows with uh, 25 to life on that run. We played in uh, Newark. We played at the pipeline and we played, uh, fuck somewhere in Connecticut, uh, some skate. Uh, now it wasn't even a skate park. We played somewhere else. Um, some of it becomes a blur, but I want to say that was the time we were there and, I don't know, Ernie and Eddie and Jamie from Haybreed ended up in a diner and some drunk guy sat down thinking he was being cute and ended up with like a bunch of broken plates of, uh, you know, breakfast for dinner over his fucking head because he's being <laughs> retard, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, they, uh, uh, we, we, we did, we did a bunch of those shows. And I mean, that, that was, that was the first time that we got out there. That was the first time, you know, and we played with, um, like maximum penalty and we played with um, Murphy's law and we played with, Oh, we played upstate New York too. We played in Albany. So and we played with killing time. Like it was, it was a, it was a good run. It was, you know, it was only four or five shows, but they were dope. All the shows were dope with bands that I loved, you know, and, and it felt good to be on the East coast, you know? It was, yeah. How did that feel for you personally to like get to return and, and do it like in a proper style? Oh yeah. Oh shit, man. I mean, it was just great because I mean, it's like, okay, we're, we're a hardcore band and now we're playing, we get to play, you know, at the epicenter of, of, you know, 
at least in my mind of hardcore, you know, New York city, like, you know, we're, we're, we're playing, you know, we're playing at the wetlands we're, you know, we're playing upstate we're playing, you know, actually, I actually think we played Pennsylvania. We played like out in uh, East Stroudsburg, you know, there was a bunch of, it was good shows, man. Like it was just, you know, it was dope. And I'm playing with people like bands that I'd seen forever. Murphy's law that I loved. Like we we're playing with Murphy's law. I love Jimmy to death. Still one of my favorite bands live ever. Just like, he still kills it, man. Like that band is just so dope. I mean, Jimmy's probably still one of my favorite guys to watch. You know, when he gets up there, I just, I know I'm going to laugh and he's going to play a bunch of shit that I just love to hear. And it's going to be awesome. But yeah, it was, it was, it was like a coming home for me, you know, to come back and just be like, wow, here we are. I'm, this is where I grew up watching shows. And now I'm, I get to not only play these shows, but I get to play these shows, you know, with people that I, I, I grew up listening to and, and admire so much, you know, and, yeah, and, real validation. and then be, sorry, what's that? Uh, some real validation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. You know, for sure. And then, you know, and then just, I mean, there was just all these like little special things about it. You know, the, the, the fact that, you know, we were there for that reunion of, uh, you know, stigma and Kabula and, 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 and Roger. I mean, like that's a once in a lifetime thing. And we just happened to be there. You know, I was sick. That was so dope. And they, they played two songs, but it was like, it was like a fucking tsunami wave of people coming toward the, the stage as they started it was fucking nuts. Like it's the kind of shit that you just, if you happen to catch something like that, it's the most uh, like amazing thing you're going to ever see. It's, it's, you know, you're just watching this. It looks like literally like a wave coming at you, but it's, it's, it's human beings and it's just fucking the craziest shit to see, man. And, you know, I got to be a part of that stuff, you know, to, to know, you know, this is my community. This is, these are my people, you know, and, and, and to just know that I've been, able to be a part of it and be included in it, it means a lot to me, man. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's legit hardcore history. Cause, uh, that, that record and that tour they did on that was huge. Uh, the, the, the AF, the AF on something got to give. Yeah. We got to go to Europe with them on that record. It was fucking amazing. Oh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was fuck. I mean, that, that was a big deal. You know, I mean, you know, Kabula was back. I mean, you know how many people were just excited that, yo, it's Stigma, Roger and Kabula. And it was supposed to be Jimmy Coletti and some things had happened and he wasn't able to make it, uh, on the tour. Um, he ended up get, getting sick. I, I don't remember exactly what the details were, but he couldn't make it. And so Willie Shepler was there and we'd already chilled with Willie a bunch because of, uh, you know, Mayabool and shit. So it was, it was sick, man. It was, you know, and, and, you know, Ernie and Eddie, drank with stigma every single night they wrecked the bus like we got yelled at for it you know um big j had to knock some or actually no ernie knocked some dude up in front of uh uh the so 36 in berlin you know big j had come out and he was like he'd just taken a shower and he's sitting, sitting there in his flip-flops and he's trying to walk to the bus and this guy's getting in his way and he's all drunk and stupid and and big j just kind of like politely put his his arm on his shoulder to move him out of the way really because he's like he's not trying to have this dude step on his feet and whatever he literally was being very like nice i was kind of surprised to see him be nice like that but um you know he went to push him the guy starts going to try to swing at jay and he just came from the side boom just knocked the dude out and then mosh sat there that was the tour manager and he scurried us up onto the bus and we had to leave because it's you know guys laying there fucking sitting in blood and fucking was that your first time ever to Europe? And uh, any yeah. other things you remember? Yeah. yeah, it was. And I mean, the thing about going, I mean, we were so fortunate to go with Agnostic Front because like the way they're regarded out there is just, 
it's nuts, man. Like it's nuts. Like every place, you know, and, and you get to Europe, particularly Germany, everybody's so proud of their beer from their region. And so every single venue is like literally like trying to push like hand trucks full of beer onto the bus every single night. And, and Roger and the tour manager are like, no, 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 no. And Stigma's like, yes, 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 yes. And, you know, and somehow it all manages to be on there. And then Stigma and Big J and Ernie and Eddie will just rage, rage, do like all night. I mean, we wake up, there'd be broken glass everywhere and food smashed into everything. And fucking, you know, the, 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 the curtains are torn off. And, you know, it just like, it was it was a bit much, bro. You know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, man. And Stigma loved that shit. Stigma loved that shit. And he always be like, "Yeah, you know what? Yeah, the big one. He's all right." Meaning Big J. He could you could be, Big J liked to drink, but he'd go to bed at some point. He'd just get bored with shit and be like, "I'm going to bed," you know. And and then Ernie, you know, Ernie could drink a lot too, but he's like, you know, the Mexican. You mean and Eddie? He's like, he's my drinking partner. He's the guy. He's the guy. And and and, and they would go, you know. That was a competition between Stigma and Eddie about who was going to drink who under the table that night. And neither one would ever. It was, a, you know, it was like a legit Mexican standoff. Nobody was doing, you know, no one was getting the better of anybody, yeah. you know. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was epic, man. I mean, we got to play great places. I saw places that night. You know, I got to, we went to Prague and we were in Budapest and, um, you know, a lot of places in Germany, you know. And, and those guys have been going forever. So, like, the treatment that we got was just, you know so good you, that you can never go back after something like that. And we did, but you, you just, you think you can't go back because you know, you're just going to be like on like the worst fucking van tour, sleeping in hostels, you know, uh, funky communal showers that who, who knows where you're going to catch on the bottom of your feet. Like just like the, 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 the worst shit that you'd ever really want to have to do as a, you know, a band touring and shit. You just figure that's, that's, that's the option. That's the other, that's your other alternative. And it's like, ah, you know, doesn't sound so hot you know you do it but yeah that's kind of like that was a big deal man that was a big deal to go out with those guys how many times did you go after the af tour so we only so you know so that was 97 right so we went back again with ignite and that's another great band to go out with at that point you know ignite um had a, a pretty good working um arrangement with vans and they you know vans have been doing the warp tour a lot of years at this point and they were trying to brand the Vans um, club tour and they were calling it the off the wall club tour. And uh, Ignite was kind of the Guinea pig. I mean, it's, you can't really call them a Guinea pig. I mean, those guys were killing it out there, but they were willing to be like the first try. And so it was uh, Ignite and it was SNFU and it was uh, us. And it was a band uh, from Sweden called Veneria, which I guess is like, uh, you know, like a venereal disease or something they called I don't that's what they chose to call themselves. And another band that ended up being on the the band's um record label at the time called Devious. And they were all great kids. And um, you know, it was kind of cool for us. We we stuck out. We were like, we were like the hard band. So we were completely different from everybody else. And uh so it, it kind of worked in our favor in a lot of ways because we stood out every night. But to tour with Ignite, I mean, those guys, like we were on a, a place called Home. They, they put that record out and that record just to me is amazing. I, I, you know, I love those guys. I love those. I mean, Zoli sang at my wedding, you know, Zoli and Brett came and played at my wedding, you know, that's, that's, that's how much I love those guys. And, uh, Zoli also, uh, uh, did Ave Maria at Ernie's funeral as well. You know, 
But we had a great relationship with those guys. We had a great relationship. And they were more than happy to bring us. We played lots of shows with them here in California. We played with them in L.A. They played with us up here. You know, we, we played in between with each other. You know, we had we had good times with those guys. And that tour was uh, exceptional as well. I mean, they were like road warriors. That was 40 shows in 42 days. Like, those guys did not play around. Like, th- there was no breaks. And, uh, uh, yeah, man, I mean, those guys just – same thing. We got really fortunate on that tour, but those are the only two European tours that we did. You know, after that we did, you know, we did our state stuff and all of that. And, you know, it, it wasn't much later. That was in 2000 and, you know, come 2000, well, end of 2003, beginning of 2004 is when things started turning bad for Ernie, you know? Yeah. Let's, let's dive into doing the, the no regret CD though. How, how was it different approaching like doing a full length from, you know, doing demo stuff and then doing a seven inch and a CD EP, but well, uh, here you're doing a full length. And like the thing about the CD too, is like a sequence so good, right? Like from beginning yeah. to end, like it's not, you yeah. know, a lot of records, like they're, they're fronted on the front end. Like you start with right. bangers, it kind of fades a bit, you know, yeah. but this one is just like all the way through it. It seems very planned out. Uh, yeah. Well, there was a lot that went into that. So, Again, Lars worked with us on that record. So, you know, and, and so uh, that was all done around the same time. And what we did is, uh, you know, we did the Pandemonium 7-inch, uh, you know, and uh, Lars's suggestion was, hey, we go with Andy, we go with Andy Ernst. Um, uh, he gets really good sound for, for vinyl. We know this is going to be a 7-inch. Um, and uh, he's the guy. Let's do that. You know, because at that point, Blackout didn't have any um, intention of putting the uh, – uh, no regrets out as vinyl. It was only going to be a CD. So, so we knew the seven inch was vinyl. So we went to Andy Ernst, Art of Ears, and uh, we did that record there. You know, and, and but we this was all kind of going on at the same time. You know, they they, they happened not far apart. And so, you know, uh, it was strategic. I mean, I, I got to tour manage for Lars for you know six plus years. You know, with uh, all from Casuals, and I watched him develop that band, and and he's the man's got a really good business mind and he, he understands music and he's, he's very good at what he does. And and he was willing to lend that to us, you know, when it came to us, you know, putting out what we put out. And so again, you know, yeah, to him, uh, we, we talked about song placement a lot at that point, you know, it was definitely like, okay, what, what makes sense? How's the flow, this and that. And, you know, it, it got rearranged a few times, you know, and the seven inch was the same, you know, like, we thought about it. It's like, yeah, we want, we want the seven inch to kind of fade out to what the CD is going to begin with, because we, we kind of close out. It was almost like a bad brains kind of move, you know, Um, where we would have that old school intro that would uh, fade out on the seven inch. And then it would go into hypocrite, which is what we used to always do. We would go, we would have our our old intro from like the demo. Um, going into hypocrite that's what we would do live and and so it it all kind of connected and in and, and anyway same thing with the record it was it was all about you know the flow and and even those songs um power trip was redone uh i should have known was was too you know all these songs were tweaked we they, they were definitely tweaked um no regrets little little changes you know nothing dramatic to any of the songs you know we we had the, the bones were there you know but um the uh you know th- those those little tweaks man they make the, they they made all the difference but you know 
Yeah, and uh, just a sequencing. Like, when nothing sacred ends, like, you're ready for Ignorant One. It's almost like yeah. I can't take the two apart. Yeah, you know, and I had, I had some people that, you know, they weren't hardcore people at all, but people that I had known that had listened to the record because they knew me. They're like, is that one song? Is that two songs? I was like, well, it's two songs. It's two songs, you know. It, well, why are they so close together? We can't. It's, it's just that's that's just what we chose to do. And, um, you know, uh, that was recorded. I mean, we did that whole recording in like a week, you know, like like recorded and mixed and everything. And I, and I know that seems like a, a long time in some cases, but for what we were doing, um, you know, we wanted to put out something really good. And so uh, that was us taking our time. I and mean, we did a lot of those demos in a day or two, you know, but but we really wanted this thing to be good. Uh, but even at that, you know, there was still um, a sense of urgency that Lars likes to work with when he, you know, he and he did that. He captured something with us um, by kind of demanding things out of us, you know, not not verbally, not sitting there saying, hey, you got to do this. But like he brought he brought something in. I mean, he's he's a he's maybe I'm biased because he's my friend, but he's a great guitar player. He's a great music writer. I mean, the, the amount of records that he's worked on and the success of those records, I mean, you, you can't deny what he does. He's it's a musical genius. I yes, mean, just because people write punk music doesn't mean they're like lesser than a Bob Dylan, right? Like this is our favorite yeah. kind of music. Well, you know, so it's like, yeah, he's a great American songwriter. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, and, and to that point, uh, it's one of those things that kind of, you know, behooves me i don't i don't quite get it sometimes when you know you'll have like punk rock kids that'll sit there and and, and be mad about rants and it's like yo that should be your superheroes like not only do they represent punk rock but like they embrace punk rock they live punk rock and they play punk rock they're playing what you want to say these these guys and they do it they're what they do it great they're good at it like why would you be mad at that like why wouldn't you embrace the fact that like these these should be the guys that's like yo these these are our guys like this is what they do and they're really good like how could you be mad at that I don't know because they still they can just they put out a new record and it's like you listen to it it's like how the fuck are you still coming up with songs Dude. that are good uh, yes a hundred percent I mean I, I I was fortunate enough to work for them I got to do some tours with with Rancid as well and I mean I could just sit there and watch them every night I mean the the, the live show is still just so insanely good man like I, I literally watched it every night for like i don't know five months you know and and i never got tired of it never so, got tired. yes i mean yeah so let's talk about the uh the skit before power trip whose yes. idea was it and how do you guys do it you know well yeah i mean you know we just kind of we were just fucking around looking for things to do you know chris contos was there from uh, you know he played with machine head you know played with attitude adjustment back in the day you know he he um you know, definitely a, a rock God, you know, been around forever. Um, one of the sick ones. I mean, he's definitely, you know, he knows what the fuck he's doing when it comes to, uh, you put him behind the drums and uh, he was hanging out too. You know, he was there with us. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just kind of goofing around like, yeah, let's do a little skit or whatever. And, you know, we, we were on, uh, you know, th this was like one of those, uh, taco missions where I think we were eating, uh, tacos pretty much every single day we'd go into the taco truck that was our thing we hung out at this there was this uh uh tio tonio was a taco truck in east oakland that we always ended up at it was it was there all the time it was pretty good it, you know be open late 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 night so we could roll in there at like three in the morning and uh you know so that was just kind of like the 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 what was in the air all the time and and, and so it was just like you know and, and it was a party vibe and whatever and the, and the song particularly you know um uh, 
It's like, oh, let's just, you know, put this thing together. There wasn't much, it, there wasn't a lot of thought that went into it. Other than let's just do this thing. We'll make it sound like a party and this and that or whatever. It's, it's, there wasn't anything super calculated about it, but that's Chris Contos uh, as, as the, um, the police officer. Okay. Yeah. That's sick. I mean, it came out great. Like you don't got to overthink it. Right. That's why it's so good. Yeah. I mean, it literally was just like, Hey, let's try this thing. It was, it was literally just like that. It was so kind of on a whim, you know, and it worked out. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's I actually. Got, oh, I that's got cool. for the local people. Uh, you guys came down at some point and played JP's barn. I don't know. I don't yeah, know. Hell if yeah. You know yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about that show? That was epic. I remember eating uh, tri-tip sandwiches that his parents made. <laughs> that was dope, man. I mean, they gave us they gave like a stupid stack of, of uh, a tri-tip sandwiches they cooked up and fed us. It was awesome. I mean, just the, just the vibe to be like, yo, okay, hey, where the fuck are we? Yeah. Like we're out in the middle of nowhere. It felt like to us, you know, um, be like all these kids are dope. Like everybody's just like the, the vibe was awesome, man. Like just the vibe was awesome. The show went fucking crazy. It's like, yo, we're playing this barn in Ohio, and like, there's a big crowd here and everybody's going nuts and, you know, stage dives and singing along and, 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 you know, and just, just the love that was shown to us, man. Like it was, it was dope. It was yeah, definitely it was dope. That, that was a great show because we were. That's like it's past Ojai too. For like the people that don't know, like Ojai is kind of already in the middle of nowhere. You go like thirty minutes like inland from Ventura, but yep. then JP's house was like thirty minutes past that, like up in the hills. <laughs> yeah, dude, it was wild. Yeah, I remember. And our boy Damon was there, and, and uh, JP had asked him to do a bunch of like cholo uh, graffiti on the inside of the barn and shit. And he did some shit like that, and you know. I remember a bunch of that, but I also remember having to drive the fuck out of there, like pitch dark. And we took the, the, the twisty way. We had to drive all the way to, to Phoenix. Oh, shit. And that was where our next show was. And so we had played that show with you guys. And then I drove through the night because those guys end up drinking. And, and I found that we were much more um, efficient if I drove through the night because uh, these guys were drinking pass out rather than drinking, have to stop and use the bathroom like 50 times. Yeah. So. So was the, the 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 goal was okay. We're gonna leave at like ten, and we, I'd start driving at ten wherever we were going, you know, if that happened to be t- 10, 11, 12, whatever. And then, and these guys would keep drinking, keep drinking, and they'd pass out in like an hour and a half, two hours, and then I could drive and make time, you know, because they weren't gonna tell me I need to stop, I need to stop, because then it's like not only is it about pissing, then you know, Ernie was the guy he'd walk into a store. And he was the point of sale guy. So what was everybody to register? He needed to look at it and fuck with it and buy something. And, and, you know, so we never made time if it was in the daytime. So we always drove through the night and we had to drive to Phoenix. And we drove all the way to Phoenix. This is the other part that I remember about that particular show. We get to Phoenix. And we finally get a hotel room because we're pulling in there at like, I don't know. It, we probably pulled in there at like 10 in the morning, 11 in the morning. And we finally get a room and uh, I had to take care of a few things. And I'm finally getting ready to go to sleep and I go to lay down. And next thing I hear is slam, 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 slam. And, and the hotel doors to the room I'm trying to sleep in and the next one over that 25 to life. And they're all slamming and slamming. You know, I'm like, and now these guys they're like little kids, they jump behind the bed and they're like giggling and this and that. I'm like, what the fuck? And I'm just, what the fuck are you guys doing? Next thing you know, the doors getting pounded on. And now the cops are outside. I'm like, oh, what the fuck? So I've been up all night. I haven't slept yet. I drove all through the night. Well, turns out that these guys decided they wanted to rage down at the pool. 
And they took all the fucking pool furniture and they threw it in the fucking pool and something got lit on fire. And I don't know, the, the hotel security showed up and, you know, he goes to say some shit and, you know, and Rick, Rick picked something up in front of him. was like, ah, and like just threw it in the pool right in front of him. I think it was like the big concrete weight for one of the, you know, the umbrellas or some shit. Like, you know, so now there's just tons of shit. There's no water in the pool, all the furniture, all the, all the this concrete, the places, something's burning the whole shit. <laughs> the cops, the cops decide that they need to um, ask us to leave. So now, now I'm still no sleep. These guys are, are cracking up. They think it's the greatest thing ever. I'm just like, you motherfuckers, man. I'm so goddamn tired. I just want to sleep right now. So we get in the van. and it, it, So not only the cops just making sure we leave the property, now they're giving us an escort out of the city. Like, they're following us. They get on the highway with us, and they're waiting. And we literally get to the sign that said the Phoenix City Limits, and they got on their lap, and they said, don't come back, you assholes. <laughs> and, they fucking, <laughs> and they stopped on the side of the highway, and then we just had to keep moving. And we drove all the way down to Tucson where our next show was. Didn't sleep that day. And we played that show in Tucson. And for whatever reason, we decided that we didn't want to stay in Tucson. And I drove all the fucking way to uh, San Diego before I got some sleep the next day. So I mean, that's that's what that's part of what I remember about that Ohio show. Oh, that's wild. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> you, you guys have a kind of a big break between doing No Regrets and What Lies Ahead. What do you guys do in these four years? Well, at that point, um, you know, we had we had a couple of little change, we, not little changes, but we had some changes, you know, um, around that time. So, you know, we did we did no regrets, and uh, you know, ninety eight comes and and uh, Big J. So we had a good friend. His name was Circle B, and he uh, and Ernie and Big J all lived in uh east side oakland and it was like these row houses there was like three rows of of like apartments it was like three three rows of three little apartments each and they were all connected so it was just rows of them and we used to rage there like you know on fourth of july a bunch of friends would come they would shoot like you know whatever the tech nines and whatever else they had shotguns and you know they'd blow shit up all night and you know it was just like one of those places you could be wild and, and no one really tripped and um you know, Ernie lived at the back one. Our boy Circle B lived in the middle one. And Big J lived at the front one of this one particular row. And then across, there was these girls that we knew that lived at the, the top one, closest to the driveway. And then there was this dude named KJ Dave, because he smoked a lot of dust, that he lived in the middle one. And then his brother, um, Jamie, lived at the end one. And uh, anyway, uh, Dave used to do dumb shit. He did really dumb shit. He'd get he'd get dusted and he'd do dumb shit. And so Ernie and Bob would have to slap him up every once in a while just because he's he was a jerk. Like the guy just did dumb shit because he was too too fucked up for his own good. And uh anyway, one day, um, you know, Dave calls Bob, he's like, hey Bob, Circle B, his name real name is Bob. He's like, Hey Bob, come over here. And and Bob went over and, and he went to open the screen door. And as he opened the screen door, Dave lunged out and stabbed him. And he, he stabbed him in the heart and, and he bled out like in a couple of minutes and he died in Jay's arms. And, uh, and at that point, Jay was just kind of like, yo, I'm done. I, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Like, and, and he, you know, I mean, his best friend, I mean, they, they were in jail together. They, you know, all this shit, like, you know, they, they partners in crime. Like these dudes rode for years together, James and, and, and circle B. And, um, 
when that happened, it, 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 it devastated Jay. I mean, Bob was a dope dude, man. Like he was just like, he was a hard motherfucker, but he laughed about everything. He was just not, he wasn't an angry dude. He was always just, you know, like good spirit, this and that. I mean, even, even when, uh, you know, even when people would get like heated, like him and Ernie almost fought one time and Bob was like laughing the whole time, even though like, I mean, he would do what he ever needed to do, you know, but he, he just laughed. He was like a good, he was just like a good hearted dude, you know? And, and anyway, you know, that fucked Jay up, man. You know I mean? You have your friend literally die in your arms, just bleed out, man. You know, like he watched him turn gray, man, in his arms, you know, as the blood left his body, you know? And, and, uh, and that was it for him. And so he left and, 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 you know, we were bummed, you know, it, it, it was a sad time, you know, but um, we understood it. And, uh, and we ended up getting this guy named kid name is Aaron. He actually, he's played for um, naked, naked aggression for years now. Um, but he had played with a band called I Madman that we knew from Fresno and Damon, the guy that did the graffiti at JP spot was the singer from that band. And, uh, uh, anyway, we got kid and he started playing for us and we did like a Japan tour. We went out there and we played with this band called numb. Who's really good. Uh, eternal brotherhood all these super japan was dope like what an amazing culture like the, the the amount of respect that like guests are given the amount of respect that older people are given it's 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 pretty cool to see man i mean the the, the, tr the culture and the, the tradition it's just like wow like pretty dope and then the shows were amazing man like packed just packed like it was like the subways like you know where they got those guys with the sticks i mean they literally crammed them in like that and the shows were sick and we had a kid for a while, you know, and, and, and we did that. And, you know, we did the Japan tour and, and we were slowly working on music, you know, I mean, it, it seemed more like the barbecue and the hangout was almost more important at the time. You know, it's, it, you know, we were truly friends. We weren't just playing in a band together. Like we, we hung out collectively, like almost every single day. If, if I didn't see Ernie five times in a week, something was off. Like there was something, you know, I must've been sick as fuck or, you know, whatever. I don't know. But we literally saw each other every single day, you know? So, uh, you know, you know, the band was a priority, but it, it, I, yeah, at that point it just, you know, some, uh, you know, roster changes and stuff kind of slowed things down. And, you know, we did the Japan stuff, you know, and we did, and we did like some small release stuff at that point, you know, there was, there was like a, uh, the seven inch that came out, um, with no, yeah, split seven inch with numb. Yep, yep. So, so there was that, you know. Um, and then, you know, we were like just working on demos and things like that, and uh, you know, uh, and then and then we finally started, you know, trying to put together. That was '99. So, you know, um, what lies ahead? You know, we were working on a bunch of those songs, you know, but we were also trying to shop around. You know, um, we did have an option for a second record with Blackout. Um, but at the time we just, you know, there was, there, it just kind of seemed like, yeah, you know what, maybe, maybe we're going to try to do something, something else. And we ended up talking, you know, AJ from resurrection AD records was pretty aggressive coming after us and stuff. Like he, he wanted to sign us and wanted to sign us. And uh, he offered us some more money, you know, to do a record. And we thought, Hey, well, that's a good thing. We, you know, we didn't pocket any of it, you know, but it gave us the ability to, to, you know, record at a, a pace that was kind of nice. We had a little bit more time to do it and stuff. So um yeah because this is like a super well thought out record you know like yeah that, that makes sense you were demoing stuff because you, yeah. you guys take some big risks on this record too like bulletproof is a wild song yeah. you know yeah. with, like, with like the scene in it and then uh yeah. what lies ahead going kind of melodic and then 
I had totally forgot about the song Lose My Faith until I was doing my homework for this. Yeah. And like, that's a fucking deep ass song, too. Yeah, it's trippy, right? Yeah. Like yeah, the, I, the I, journey I, this I, album I, takes I, you on, too, is like something else. You know, that's the funny thing. Those three songs were the, those three songs I actually wrote the music for. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's just, uh, we all brought different things to the table, you know, but uh, Ernie was a juggernaut, like in the studio. That guy fucking killed it when he wrote music, man. Like he could just do it with such ease. I'd have to come back to riffs for days and weeks and months and years. And this motherfucker could literally walk in a room and I'd be like, yo, I got this. And he'd be like, okay, we're doing this. Boom, 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 boom. And we'd be done like five minutes. I mean, he just, he could do that on the regular. When, when, when we came up with that first intro, I was like, yo, we should have an intro. He's like, okay, I got it. And he literally played that just <laughs> like that. It, it, he just, he had shit in his head like that. It's um, Tim from Rance is like that. He's just got like shit rolling around in his head all the time. He's just like, yo, how do you have that much music going on in your head like that? Like it's, it's, uh, I'm, I admire it. I'm kind of envious of it at the same time. You know, it's like, fuck, I wish I could be like that, you know? But, Whose idea um, was it for the singing part in Bulletproof, and and how do you guys pull that off? Well, yeah, I don't know why we decided. I, I guess we just kind of felt like, yo, let's try this. It seems like maybe there should be a chick singing there, and Ernie just happened to know this dude that was from like around the way. Like he lived in the same, you know, in like the same apartment complex that you know Ernie lived in at some point. His name was Pierre, and he just kind of had a roster of chicks that like sang for stuff. And, you know, he was kind of in music and shit. And Ernie just called them up and said, Hey, yo, you got a girl that could come in here and flow. And, uh, and he showed up in like an hour and he brought this girl and she, she fucking killed it, man. We're like, Holy shit. That was dope. Yeah, I know. It sounds so amazing. Like I thought, you know, it might've been like sampled out of something. That's wild. And she just up and just came in and did that. She did that in two takes. Holy shit. Two takes, she did that. And she just came out and just like, she did it once to say, nah, I want to do it one more time. And, and then she did it. And that was it. How do you feel about the albums against one another? Like uh, if you're well, going to describe no, regret, no regrets versus describing uh, what lies ahead. Well, so, uh, you know, no regrets. Um, I mean, that record, I, I look at it now. I'm like, wow, that's a pretty fucking, like I, I'll listen to that record. And be like, holy shit. Like that thing's pretty fucking it's pretty slick, man. In a lot of ways, like it's raw. It has that urgency, like that stuff that Lars likes to capture. But at the same time, like it's, it's really well put together, man. Like, you know, when people hit me up, they hit me up and say, yo, I'm checking out no regrets. And I get it. Like, I understand why there was definitely like a vibe that was caught with that whole record. Um, I actually kind of felt like, you know, what lies ahead definitely took more of a, a, a like a New York hardcore, you know, no regrets definitely has a much more punk edge to it for sure. You know, a lot faster, there's more melody to it. Um, but as I go back, I, I like that shit a lot. Like, you know, some of the songs, the way they were written, they almost feel like a chase. You can almost like, as you're listening to it, you can feel the mosh in your head. Like as a, just the way the, 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 the riffs kind of circle around and circle around and circle around, you know? And, uh, and then we kind of, you know, we played a lot of hardcore shows with a lot of, East coast bands and this and that. And it's just kind of like, you know, we, it, it, things definitely got heavier too. And we, I think we were just kind of, you know, when it came to what lies ahead, it's just kind of where our heads were at at the time. You know, there's definitely songs on there. Um, that record wasn't as successful. And I think, you know, I talked to Joe Harcourt with it about it at one point. He's just like, yeah, you know, when that record came out, there was a kind of a weird lull in hardcore. And, and, and that kind of makes sense. But, uh, you know, it's it's a different record for sure, you know, but I, I also felt like there were songs on there that 
in some ways were better, you know, like I, I, I you know, Ernie wrote when they come for you, like the, the music for that, I, that song to still to this day is just a, for me, it's a fun song to, to, to perform like yeah, color versus pride standout song color versus Yeah. 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 That's another one. Um, um, yeah, I mean, there was great. So, uh, it's my life and, you know, bulletproof, like we, you know, we, back then we did play bulletproof live and it, you know, kind of came off, not really like listening to on our record, I think is actually a lot better, you know, not necessarily a live song so much, yeah, but when we did, when we did play it in Europe, it was kind of cool because Rob that played bass for SNFU would come out and we kind of extend in the middle there, like where the girl would normally flow and stuff. And he would come out and flow and, and do all this shit. And it was fun. It almost became, you know, a little bit of a party. Like we had people jumping on stage for this and that and whatever. And it, it was, it was a good time, but yeah, the songs definitely got different. You know, I also, you know, no regrets. I was 25 years old, you know, 26 years old, 24 years old, 23 years. So, you know, as we wrote a bunch of that music, you know, and my headspace was different, you know, I was pretty, you know, clueless to myself at that point, you know, and I definitely became more aware of some of my inner struggles and things that, uh, uh, I have as, uh, what lies ahead kind of developed, you know, and, and at that point, you know, we'd experienced a bunch of loss, you know, we'd had a lot of friends that had died, Bob being one of them, you know, we had a week at one point where three friends died in, in, in two weeks, you know, um, and that's, that's kind of what inspired what lies ahead. Um, just kind of like, holy shit, like, you know, life's fucking crazy. What, what's, what's happening next, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I love both of those records for different reasons. I, you know, I like what we did. Um, I don't know. I, I do feel like, you know, I, for me personally, I felt like I got better lyrically on the second record, you know? They're just, they're both awesome. They're just, they're very different, you know, but yeah, like, yeah. they still, it's still you singing, right? So it's going to have the same flavor. Like it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. two different approaches. They're both great though. Well, I thank you. I appreciate that, man. I do. I do. Uh, let's talk about uh, powerhouse wrapping up. Actually, you know, before we do that, let's talk about the bomb shelter a little bit. Um, yeah. So you guys do a club. Can you describe the place and, and talk about that experience? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Ernie being the hustler that he was, I mean, he always just liked to have shit going on and he always had a great idea for the next thing that he wanted to do. And, you know, he was the idea guy and then he would let everyone else kind of do all, all the footwork. And he calls me up one day and he's like, I opened a club. And I'm like, what the fuck you mean you opened a club? And he's like, I got this spot, you know, cause we, we had been, let me back up a minute. So there was a spot in Alameda. Alameda is an island right next to Oakland. It sits in the bay. And it's a town. Like, you know, it's not a small island. It actually is, you know, it's miles and miles long. It has tons of homes. Tens of thousands of people live on it, you know. Um, but there was a bar. And we'd been doing shows at that bar. It was a place called the Alameda Saloon. And for what, whatever reason, maybe, you know, this guy, Jack, that owned it, he was a lawyer of all things, but he owned this bar and he was willing to let Ernie do whatever the fuck he wants in there. Like he gave Ernie the keys. He fucking let Ernie book whatever shows he wants. Let Ernie put a big, one of the big bouncy castles in the middle of the fucking bar for like a Halloween and shit. And like, you know, the place would get wrecked on a regular with whatever, you know, whatever was going on. And, uh, you know, that bar ultimately closed. And that's where we had done a bunch of shows. And, and so Ernie needed a new spot and he just found this warehouse, like deep East Oakland, man, like in the hood, man, like deep, deep, deep East Oakland. And, uh, it had been like a, like an auto body spot and, uh, you know, who knows, might've been a chop shop. I mean, there's a bunch of them out that way, but, um, 
it had been an auto body spot and we got it. It still had like the spray booth sitting in the back and he had pulled the stage out of the Alameda saloon and he started throwing together some like little funky shows and this and that. And, uh, and the room was cool, man. I mean, you could put a lot of people in that room. Like you, we probably could have put six or 700 people in that room. And, uh, just realized that like, Hey man, like if we're going to do this shit and we're going to ask some of our friends that are touring bands that are coming through from like all around the country and shit. Like this fucked up little stage ain't going to cut it, man. Like cause it was, it was a fucked up little stage. And so me and my roommate at the time, this guy Dayton, who you can see, uh, he posts a lot of stuff on Instagram. He's got a lot of good old photos of all sorts of shit. He was a great, great photographer, but, um, he was my roommate too. And we ended up building a stage for the place right before AFI played there. Cause we knew it was going to be a big show and, and that the stage just wasn't going to cut it. And we had stayed up all night and we built this stage. And, you know, next thing you know, like it was a good turnout. I don't know. It was like five or 600 kids at the show, but there was probably like 150 people on the stage. And we're sitting there and we're like, Oh fuck, is this thing going to even, you know, we were waiting for it to collapse because I mean, we literally stayed up all night long. We finished it at like one or two o'clock in the afternoon, went home and slept for like two hours and then went back for the show. And, uh, the glue was probably not even dry at that point on the stage, you know? And, uh, but it came off it was big. It was a dope stage. It was like 20 feet wide. It was like, I think 12 feet deep. Like you could, and, and anyway, we had AFI played there, Redemption played there, 25 to Life played there, VOD played there a couple times. Um, um, Murphy's Law came through there, Agnostic Front came through there, you know, and and I knew that was going to happen. And I was just like, hey, dude, like if we're going to ask these bands to come through here, we got to make this a little bit better. And so we built this stage and we actually built like a uh, like a. Uh, like almost like an amphitheater, not an amphitheater, but we kind of built a wall and, and, and a, a kind of a, a, a roof to it to direct the sound better and stuff and, and painted it black and whatever, you know, we, and we set it up the best we could. And uh, the place probably went for like a year, you know, Ernie had conned this dude to put it in his name, you know, the lease and stuff. And um, so, but I mean, anything could go in that neighborhood, man. I mean, if, if you wanted to body somebody, you could have like, no, no one would have even known, dude. Like it was by some, you know, railroad tracks covered in weeds and there's piles of garbage everywhere. And I mean, and, and you know, the hood was right around the corner. Like, I mean, we would had to caution people on the regular, like, Hey, listen, like there's a bathroom here, you know, you want to come to the neighborhood, come this way, leave this way. Don't go up the street that way. Just don't, you know, um, cause bad things, nothing good would come with that, you know? Um, but, but we had great shows, man. I mean, we did, we had VOD show up one time. I mean, on, on like two days notice because they had a show canceled and they had a bus and they were trying to like cover costs and you know, whatever. And, and we put a show together on two days notice and there was like, fuck, I don't know, 400 kids in there. You know, it's like, it, it, it kind of, you know, it was like a lightning rod for a moment. People just kind of knew like that was a good place to go catch some, catch some shows, you know? So you know, what ended up happening? I just kind of ran out. I mean, yeah, anybody that runs a nightclub will tell you like how yeah. hard it is to like constantly fill, you know, uh, a calendar with, with bands and stuff. And, you know, it was fun for a moment. And then when it started to become more like work to Ernie, he just kind of lost interest. And then he, he put it on Sammy to make to keep it running. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Sammy did the best he could, but he called me more than once to say, Ernie's going to kick my ass. What do I do? And I'd have to call up Ernie and fucking talk him off the ledge and tell him like, chill out. Like, no, 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 it's okay. Sammy's all right. Don't fucking don't smack him up. It's all right. You know? And, and I, I could, I could talk to Ernie that way at least, you know? And, uh, uh, 
And, but it just got, you know, and, and Sammy finally said, fuck it, I can't do this. I can't do this. And that was kind of like, you know, you know, he got tired of being, being threatened on a regular basis. So, uh, yeah. it just kind of fizzled out, you know, and it was cool for the moment, you know, it was like one of those things, you know, it just kind of, it lasted for what it was and it was cool for the time, but you know, we had a crucial barbecue with Murphy's law. We fucking actually ended up with this barbecue and, you know, rage with those dudes all day. And then they played a show and drank beer all night and whatever. And it was, you know, it was cool. It was a good place. It was, it, it was a cool place for sure. That rules. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the end of powerhouse. Um, how does it wrap up? Well, so I guess, uh, well, it was beginning in 2004, you know, we, we were playing shows still. We were playing less shows at the time, you know, um, everybody was just kind of doing different shit. I, I was trying to get my shit together, like financially and this and that, you know, I, you know, I always worked, I always had a job going, but you know, anybody in a hardcore band, you know, knows that a, there's not a lot of money going out there on the road. I mean, there's a few bands that can do it. You know, Ignite was good at it. Mayball can do it. You know, they can actually be a working band. Uh, I think Tara does a pretty good job at it too. Uh, I don't know their finances, but they keep doing it. So I'm sure that they're doing, you know, they're making some kind of money to keep going out, you know? Um, so some bands have managed to make a living sick of it all. Another one, you know, they, they, they can make a living out of it. Um, you know, that wasn't necessarily us. Like, you know, we, you know, we could have good shows and this and that, but like, we weren't killing it every night. We couldn't demand lots of money. So, uh, you know, I, I had to work, you know, I had to start, uh, getting caught up on my bills because more times than not, I was, I was the one getting the merch and, you know, I, I paid for the van ultimately that we had and paid the insurance on it and everything was going to be a bit much. And so I had to pull back a little bit, you know, I, I didn't want to end the band by any means, but at this point, you know, Eddie had left. Um, he lost a job when we went with Ignite um, uh, uh, on tour when we did that. He, he lost a pretty good job. And so, you know, and he kind of got to a point where he's like, hey, man, like, I got to make money. He, you know, he had a girl. He was getting married, like, you know, had a bunch of shit like that. You know, he he was kind of growing up, you know, so Eddie left and that became a weird thing. Cause So, you know, Big J had left, you know, and, and it was us for, you know, quite a while. It was me, Big J. Ernie and Eddie and, and, and we were the unit, you know, and, and, and when Jay left, it definitely felt weird, but you know, we could keep going, you know, pretty easily. And we got kid and that was cool. And then, you know, then we got Walter and that was dope. You know, we'd known Walter forever and, uh, and we were a unit too, you know, and then, uh, and then Walter bounced, you know, he had, he ended up going back, uh, East, you know, some things didn't work out from here and he needed to leave. And, uh, he, you know, his, his parents, you know, had health things going on and stuff. And so he, he went out to, to be with them and uh, you know, and then, and then Eddie leaves and then, you know, we end up with um, uh, Abe that played in low life, you know, Abe ended up with us and that was dope. And we ended up with this guy, Ricky Ross, who was really good, good drummer, really good drummer. Um, you know, but all the parts started changing. So, you know, and, and, and that thing that we started with that just felt so right started feeling a little more disjointed and not because any of those people were, you know, um, bad, you know, that just wasn't what it was. It's just that it, it just became something that was not as recognizable as it had been. And so, um, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it just kind of, it, it, it just dwindled. It, it was dwindling. It was dwindling, you know? Um, and I would say this, um, so Ernie died from, uh, cancer. 
you know, he died in 2004. He died December 16th of 2004. He died of cancer. He was only 37 years old, but you know, he kind of knew something was wrong for a, a few years prior to that. And his girlfriend at the time, her name was Kat. She had asked him a lot of times like, Hey, you know, just go to the doctor. We get this shit checked out, please. Will you just do this? And, uh, from what I understand, he did go and get tested in this and that, but he never went back to find out what the results were. And he always felt like something was wrong. And he used to tell us, I mean, there would be certain times he's like, I know, you know, he'd be, he'd been drinking and this and that, he'd kind of start getting into a mood. Like, I know what I got cancer and this and, you know, and he just felt like that was it. Like he had it. And, and, you know, 2003 going into 2004, you know, his behavior got different, man. Like, um, he would get more hostile. I would, I would argue with him a lot more, like come close to, we, we fist fought once many, many years ago when we were recording one of those demos, um, the 96 demo. But, but after that we clicked super, super hard. It, 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 there, there was kind of a, a mutual respect that was gained after that fight. And, uh, cause it was bad. We, we probably fought for 20 minutes. We fought and it broke up and fought and broke up, fought and broke up, fought and broke up, fought and broke up, you know? And, uh, anyway, uh, it was kind of going down that road on a regular basis where we were constantly, um, like at odds, man, we were, we were arguing a lot. We were, you know, uh, Ernie was hostile and, uh, really, um, just, uh, he was just in a bad way. I mean, you, and I, I, you know, looking back on it, I can understand it. But at the time I just felt like, he's like, dude, you're being such a dick. Like what the fuck, man? Like you're my boy. Like we're not supposed to be like this. And he would just be like that, you know? And, and, and he would, he was just acting out and, and being aggressive. And, and when I look back on it, I understand it. It's like, yo, he, he was, he had to have been scared. I mean, how could you not be like, he knew something was wrong. Like he knew something was wrong but he would never say it, you know? And it wasn't until like January of 2004, he and a good friend of ours, little Kev were driving, little Kev was doing t-shirts. He was printing t-shirts and stuff. And they were going for like a t-shirt convention down in Southern California. And Kev was driving and Ernie was in the car with them, with him. And, and uh, they had to stop constantly because Ernie couldn't even sit in the car because he was in so much pain. Like, I think, I think it took them like eight or nine hours to make the drive down. And it was the same or more to come back when they finally came back. And, and, and at that point, Ernie knew like he had to go back to the hospital and, and he went to the, you know, he, this was a guy that, again, he never had a real job. He never worked. So he didn't have medical coverage. So he's relying on the good graces of a hospital. that's just going to take you in. And, and he went in there and they started running some tests. And then it looks like he's got this tumor that's pushing on his stomach and, you know, all this stuff. And, and and so it's, when I look back at, you know, all of this, it's like, okay, well, that's why he was freaking out the way he was, but that's also part of why like the band started to dwindle just because it, it, it was getting to be hard to do it, you know? Um, and, and then it turns out that, you know, they find this tumor and they say, Hey, yeah, you know, uh, it's like the size of a remote control. So it's like a good sized tumor, man. It's big, you know? And, and he says, uh, they say to him, well, you know, we could take it out. You know, we feel like you have about a 90% chance, you know, um, it's, it looks pretty good. And, uh, 
You want me to stop for a second with the car going? Are you picking that up? Can you hear that car, Zach? Yeah, I hear it, but let's just roll. Okay. So, um, <laughs> we, we can break. Yeah, no, it's all good. I can keep going. I'm just trying to catch my train of thought here. Nah, so, yeah. so, I know. So anyway, yeah, so, so he has the surgery. You know, so we actually, we play a Redemption 87 reunion in April. I, I want to say it was April 23rd of 2004. I, I feel like that was a date. If it wasn't that, it might have been the 24th, whatever that Saturday was at the end of April. And Ernie was scheduled for his surgery that Monday. And, uh, you know, again, you know, we're understanding everything's going to be okay. You know, 90% chance. That's pretty good odds, man. Right. So, uh, he went into the hospital on Sunday. They had to prep him up, no eating this and that, whatever. And so he'd been there and he had a surgery on Monday. I talked to him on Tuesday morning and I'm like, yo man, uh, so, so what's the word? How you doing? And he's like, nah, bro, that's it. And I was like, nah, don't, don't even joke around like that. You know, shut up, dude. And he was like, no, dude, I'm, I'm fucking serious. Like, that's it. I was like, what do you mean that's it? He's like, they told me it's everywhere. And it turned out that like the cancer was everywhere, man. Like it was everywhere. And um, yeah, it was like all the oxygen on the planet left me at that point. Like it was just gone. Like, and uh, you know, they told him at that point he had six months to a year to live, you know, and that was April and he made it to December. He made it eight months, you know? But, uh, and that, that ultimately was the end, you know, because at one point, um, as everyone kept leaving the band, I looked at her and I said, Hey man, you ever leave this band? That's it, dude. I'm not doing this band without you. You know? And that was probably around the time that Eddie left. I was just like, I, I, I can't, like, I'm not going to do this band without you. You know, Eddie wasn't in the band. It, I'm, it's, I can't do that band. Ernie's the one that's Ernie started the band, you know, it, it just, it, to me at that moment wouldn't have been right. You know? So, uh, so then he got sick and he, he fought this cancer thing. And, and, you know, um, they told him based on where the cancer was, I mean, it, it was everywhere in his organs, man. And they, they just told him, they said, Hey, you know, there's nothing we can do for you. And, uh, they said, don't, you know, you could do radiation or you could do chemo. Actually, they said you could do chemo, but you're going to be miserable and you might get an extra six months. And so he said, fuck it. And he didn't do anything. And they, they gave him some morphine patches because the pain got really bad. And he just kept saying, yeah, if it keeps hurting, put on another morphine patch, put on another morphine patch. And, and he just rode that shit out, man. I mean, he was hard, dude. He was hard, man. I mean, like, you know, he just kept doing what he could do until he couldn't anymore. And, and, and that was it, you know? But, uh, yeah, and that, that, that became the end of the band, man. You know, that was, that was December 16th of 2004. That's when powerhouse ended you know and and we did we did a memorial show after that uh which helped pay for his headstone uh and then we we um we ended up doing another memorial show uh about five years later that ian mcfarlane actually filmed and we have film up and we actually you know um i ended up singing for doomsday device which was Ernie's other band and that band was dope that band was so good and and the, the later songs that never got released were so good and part of my inspiration at that point was to try to just keep that band out there. And so we did this kind of combo powerhouse doomsday um, show and to play those songs just, just so they didn't get forgotten and, and, and record them. And at some point I do hope we can still get that out there because um, 
it was like a five camera shoot. Michael Rosen, I mean, insane engineer came and recorded it for us. The recording's great. The video's great. You know, we, we got to interview people about Ernie. Like I just got to, I just got to get back around to it, you know, but that's out there too, to, to, to get out there. I mean, the most important thing to me now is just keeping Ernie's name out there, man. I mean, he was, like you said, he was a character, man. There's certain people, man, that really, truly like, um, like mean something to everyone. You know, he, he was one of those people that just like, he was bigger than life. And, and so, um, when he, when he died, a lot of people were just kind of like, uh, lost myself included. You know, I, I was, I was truly lost, man. You know, we, we created something with powerhouse, you know, it, it kind of was more, it wasn't just being a band. It was, it was actually more of a movement. And so, you know, Ernie was my bandmate. Ernie was like my brother. Ernie was my business partner. Cause we did actually have a tattoo shop together. And so when he died, like everything that I had come to know myself as like stopped existing, man, because we were so intertwined and, uh, yeah, it, it got really weird for a long time, man. I was in a pretty, pretty bad space for a long time, man. You know, like I just, I couldn't get out of it because I just, I felt, you know, nothing seemed uh, recognizable anymore, you know? How were you able to pull out of it? <laughs> you know, I have no idea, man. A lot of therapy, I guess. Who knows? You know, uh, uh, a lot of introspection, man. I've had to look, I've had to look at myself and just, and, and a lot of this, it, it's time, man. Time, time does a lot. You know, you, you, you kind of see what's happened with people. You see what's happened with yourself. You, you, you know, you, you, uh, growing up, I was always, I can't, I had a pretty fucking shitty upbringing, man. And uh, I knew there was something wrong when it came to my family. Like I knew there was something wrong, but I was always told that it was me. Like, oh, you're just tripping. You're just tripping. And at 38 years old, I finally found out that, no, I wasn't tripping. I, I was right. Like, no, there was something really fucked up. And, but because I grew up that way, because I was always told that it's like, no, it's you, it's you, it's you. I always learned that I had to look, I can only look inside. I couldn't reach out to others for help. And so it just, but when it's like that, it takes a long time, man. Like, you know, and so for real, I was just like stuck inside myself for a really, really long time, man. A really long time because I, I felt like I had to figure it out on my own. I felt like I was on an island. I really did, you know, because at that point, I, and I kind of, I kind of was, things started to splinter, even within my family, there was some rifts in my family, you know, when it came to me and my brother and, and, you know, and, uh, the, uh, you know, friendships and, 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 and the, you know, the bandit, like everything, everything just like, it just was like a, a massive explosion and everything just went, flew everywhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's brutal. But you pulled out of it. Right. So that's positive for people. Cause you know, a lot of people yeah. do loss like that. Yeah. I mean, so Here you are. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I did the best I could to stay connected to music because it truly is my life's blood. Like it, it it's, it does inspire me. I, and, and so, you know, I, I kept, I, I started promoting shows in 2007. Um, 
I, I promoted out of the Metro a little bit. I promoted uh, with the park side. I promoted at DNA. I promoted at um, this place called Cornerstone. I've done some stuff at Gilman. You know, I, I, so I, I keep promoting shows. And then on top of that, then I also started tour managing a lot. So I worked for Rancid and I worked for all from Casuals and I worked for Madball. I've done some one-off stuff for Agnostic Front. You know, um, I'd been offered other things too, but you know, I, I, I was more interested in working with the people that I love, like, you know, my friends. So, you know, I, I kind of was, pretty choosy about stuff. I wasn't just looking for a gig because I had a job here. I could make money here all day. You know, that's not a problem. So, but that, that's kind of, that's some of the stuff that kind of kept me going a little bit, but you know, um, uh, I mean, the, the, the big news is, is that actually we've been playing again. We we've actually even been writing new music. So, you know, what, what once was will be again, you know? Um, yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. So, you know, Walter's actually in the next room. He came back out here and he's staying with me right now while he's getting situated. And, and you know, we got um, Eddie playing guitar again and he's really happy to be doing it. And it feels good to him and it feels great to me and it feels great to Walter. And we got Casey that played with Never Healed and played with All From Casuals. And he's got another band he's doing now as well. But um, he, for the longest time, it was one of those things where if I were going to stand on stage, I always knew when I'd look to my left, you know, most of the times left, Ernie was going to be standing there. And I'd say, well, and being the personality that he was, who the fuck could fill his shoes? Like, who the fuck could fill his shoes? And, and the answer is, is no one. No one. No one could ever be Ernie. That's that's the truth of the matter. I mean, his his personality, his songwriting, his um, just the way he embraced life. I mean, he lived life so full, like it was crazy. Like I I I I I admired him for the way he could live life because every day was just like meant to be a, a massive party and celebration. Like that's just how he lived it, and it, it was a pretty awesome way to be, man. I mean, for the short amount of time that he had, he did it right. Um, but again, how, how, how do I stand on stage with someone else? Like who's going to be the right guy? Well, you know, I've known Casey for a long time now and Casey's a, a, he's a great guitar player, but he turns out to be a really awesome bass player too. And there's things that are familiar about, you know, Casey, like it, Casey is not Ernie and Ernie would, would have never been Casey, but there's familiar things uh, about Casey that makes it feel right to me. And, and, and in that, I can be okay with like doing this again. Cause I, I feel like, you know, I realized that, you know, by not doing the band, I, I'm not keeping Ernie out there. Like we're, we're not, we're not doing him, you know, I'm, I'm doing him a disservice by not doing the band. Like I don't want people to forget about him. I don't want people to forget what an awesome person he was or, or the, the, the musicianship, the, 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 you know, the bass player, just to, everything that he brought, to the world that I knew at least. And a lot of other people that knew him, if you knew Ernie, I mean, you, you just, um, I, I wish I could explain it better. It's just, he was one of those people, man, like, irre, you know, irreplaceable, but Casey gives me enough familiarity where I can say, okay, I can do this, you know? Yeah. So the future is uncertain, but, uh, as of now, like, how do you look at the, the legacy of powerhouse in like Bay area, hardcore history? How do I look at? It? Well, I mean, so again, we at the time that we started doing the band, there wasn't a hardcore scene here. There just wasn't. 
there was nothing. There was, you know, Attitude Adjustment had done something prior to us for sure. And they were a good band and they were respected. Um, but they were kind of standalone. They weren't, at least from what I understood about it, they were like a standalone band, you know. Um, and they, they were really good for what they did, but they weren't necessarily part of like, like a hardcore scene. Um, you know, I mean, metal was, metal was king here, thrash metal. I mean, we're talking, this is like ground zero thrash metal, you know. Um, that's that's what was the big deal and that's kind of what was still going on in the early 90s and so we literally you know and and then the what was being claimed as hardcore was like screw 32 and um good riddance and uh, afi and all that and that was cool you know they were doing their thing but they were more melodic and they you know more punky kind of you know hardcore and and that was cool too but we weren't really accepted in those circles and 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 that's kind of how the OBHC thing spawned is that, you know, they were all claiming this East Bay hardcore thing. That was what they did. And we weren't really welcoming in that. And I can understand. I mean, Ernie was an intimidating guy. He looked forward to knocking somebody out on a regular basis. I watched him do it a million times and more times than not, he would laugh after he did it, you know? And so I can understand why people might be leery hanging around him. You know, he, he, he definitely had, we all had a reputation, you know, um, he particularly, but we all had a reputation. The band had a reputation and we weren't embraced by the East Bay hardcore scene. And I was like, our boy, little Kev, his dad had an embroidery shop in, in, in uh, Alameda. And I was like, well, fuck, I mean, the X and the hardcore, how do we fucking do this? And I was like, well, we're an Oakland band. I said, and we, 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 our shit, our brand, this is our brand. We are an Oakland brand hardcore. This is what we do. And, and we just started claiming Oakland. And that was it. It's like, you guys can have your East Bay shit and whatever, but we're going to be Oakland. And this is us. And a lot of people rallied around that, you know? And that kind of, that's kind of what stuck, man. And it wasn't an intentional thing. It just kind of happened, you know? It was just kind of like, I want this cool thing on a hat. You know, I got to put something on there. OBHC. Okay, that'll work, you know? And, uh, because so I felt like Oakland, California, hardcore, OCHC would look weird on a hat. So it just ended up being this B, you know, Oakland brand hardcore. And, and people embraced it, man. And, and it's stuck. And, you know, I when I promote shows still, it's cool, man. I mean, I, I never really thought about it that, that way. But kids will come up and say, hey, man, thank you for what you did. And I'm like, well, I didn't really feel like I did that much. But, I mean, I'm... I, I'm flattered to know that to, for some people that what we did mattered that much. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to hear, man, you know, it's, it, it's cool. And, and, you know, there's a scene here now and it, it keeps going and, it, and it's cool. And I'm, I'm psyched to hopefully, you know, really truly be back a part of it as a band, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess we kind of get dubbed with that, you know, you know, the founding father kind of shit of the area, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I don't know, you know, but no, what's rad about it is like, it started so organically and like you guys were always authentic. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's why it has lasting value. Well, and well, yeah, thank you. I mean, it, it's, we just did what we did. I mean, we, we truly, we, it was almost like the band was secondary, man. Like, you know, we just loved each other as people. We wanted to hang out and be around each other. And then it turned out that we could play music together too. That was like bonus, you know? And then we could go play shows too, you know? But we were going to hang out no matter what. And that that's more times than not, we'd go out on tours and the shows would be cool. But our favorite part was being in the van, talking shit and wherever we were heading next. And it was just being together. Like we truly loved being together. 
So, and I guess people felt that. I mean, maybe that's what it is. I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. I think that's it. Like that, that the authenticity like comes through. Like you guys yeah. were real bros, right? Like you're yeah. not just like you know, you're not a strategic band, like trying to. Not that you weren't trying to make things happen, but it's natural. You're you're around each other because you love each other and it's you love true. your music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, yes. You answered it better than me. Oh come on! I I just got I got practice. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, so, Chris, you've yeah. been great. I I really appreciate your time. You've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it. I'm glad to know someone actually wants to hear what the fuck I have to say, man. Oh, people are ready for it. People are ready for it. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like you've been well represented? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I realize like you know one one question or a conversation leads to another. There's a million things that I realize like wow, I could have talked about this or I could have talked about that. You know. Hey, we can always do a, a part two when Jeremy Lux listens to this and tells me everything I forgot to ask. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. totally. All right. Totally. Well, I appreciate it, Chris. Yeah. Thank you, Zach. I appreciate your time, man. I really do.